Isn't it great to worship with a group of people that is not so tied down to a rigid set routine that we can't stop and pray together over something pretty neat like that? I really appreciate uh, the, the atmosphere that Cornerstone provides that says, you know what, we're going we're gonna to pray for people, we're going to love people, we're going to meet needs right where they are, and so I, I'm just so appreciative of you in that. The only thing that, that I could have done better that was just pointed out to me in that moment was that I, I should have said, go dogs. So I fixed that. Lily, go dogs. So, uh, and she hollered it back. That's my girl. So God bless you. The Lord bless and keep you. And uh, we'll be praying for her. And I'm sure she'll update us along the way. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9, that's where we're going to be this morning for about the next uh, 25 minutes or so. We're probably, we're probably all familiar with the phrase, no good deed goes unpunished, right? Anybody not familiar with that phrase? Right, because we, you know, there's a... Seems to be anyway that there's a certain amount of truth to that, that this no good deed goes unpunished. And it's, it's, it's usually uttered, you know, when we've, we've tried to help someone, we've tried to do something for someone, uh, there was someone in need, and so we helped or we said something or we did something, and it's like, uh, you know, those things, they, they go unappreciated, or more than likely, whatever you tried to do just completely backfired. You know what I'm talking about? And so we, we make that say, we make that, that statement that no good deed, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. A lot of times it's also followed up with, you know, I'm never going to do that again, you know, because it's just, you know, it's like you try to do something, you're, you're trying to be cons, uh, considerate, you're trying to be courteous, and then it just, it just totally goes the wrong way. And, you know, while there's probably not a whole lot of truth to this sort of proverbial wisdom. It sure does seem to work that way at times. Uh, I started in ministry in 1994. August of 1994 is when I started in ministry, and it has all been roses and great smells. Wow, that, that laughter was interesting. No, it's, it's not been that way at all. Now then, it's been a lot of roses and, and great smells. You know, there's been some, some very, very sweet times in ministry. There's been some times where I look back and I see the hand of God at work and you see lives change. But there have also been some times where I had full intentions of helping somebody, of ministering to somebody, and in the process I ended up angering and upsetting everybody. Okay, you know, there has just been, a few who are like, uh-huh, I know what you're talking about. I remember that time. You know, because, you know, that's just been sort of the way it is. Uh, one time I was trying to just pay a, a common courtesy to someone in, in a situation, and it involved a, a, another third party. And I was trying to, to be courteous of everybody, and I was trying to extend grace in everybody, and it completely, just absolutely blew up in my face, okay, in a way that I would not and, and could not have expected it. You know, it eventually resolved itself, but not before, you know, my motives for, for doing this were, were called into question. 
I have found myself on, on several occasions being uh, labeled as, as the bad guy because I stepped into the middle of a situation, or, or more often than not, where I was drugged into a situation that I might not have wanted to be in in the first place, where, you know, I, I had to mediate. And, uh, you know, more often than not, it seems like those kinds of situations, they don't always go exactly my way. Uh, I remember, you know, back in the, in the mid-90s, when I was still very, very green in ministry, I was teaching a, a Wednesday night class to, I don't know, about 20 teenagers. I'm teaching about salvation. I'm teaching about baptism. I'm pretty sure I'm probably teaching it in, in Acts 2, and the class goes great. And I go home, and, you know, the phone rings, and it is a father, and he is absolutely irate at me. He is mad because... According to his daughter, I have singled her out in class, and she didn't like made, being made to feel that way. Now then, I, you know, I'm teaching to a group of 20 students, so it doesn't usually work well to single out one individual. You know, they, they teach you not to, to do that, that kind of stuff, Kendall. Uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't they want, it's not a good plan to single people out like that. And so, you know, he's just going on and on, and he is letting me have it. And he says, if you don't stop this, I'm going to stand up before the church, and I'm going to tell everybody why we're leaving. And I was saying, so you're going to stand up and tell everybody you're leaving because I'm teaching your daughter about Jesus? I'm okay with that one. You know, but it was like, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm doing everything I can to try to present Jesus in this in this way, and I understand, you know, what he meant. You know, there, there's a there's a, a backstory there that that I'm not gonna give you in case this person happens to be listening to the podcast. But there's a there's some some history there. But I understand what they're saying. But there are times that you know you just try to do good. You try to help somebody. You try to minister. You try to bring joy into somebody's life. And and you know it at times it just doesn't go that way and so that's why we make that statement that you know you know not all you know or, or, or no good deed goes unpunished yet this seems to be the way of things especially when we choose to to engage in kingdom work have you ever noticed that have you ever been trying to to help someone especially in a difficult situation and it did not always go the way you wanted it to or, or you are trying and you're praying and you're ministering and you're doing everything that you think to be right by God and it absolutely blow up on you. If you can relate to that, just kind of raise your hand or say, oh yeah, or amen, or that's me, or whatever. Good. So at least we know that, that, that I'm not alone in that. It's not easy. But, you know, Jesus never promised that this was going to be easy. Okay? And, and, and I think some people kind of labor under the delusion that if I give my life to Christ, everything's going to be great, and it's going to be sweet times and good smells, you know. But it's usually not that way. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, in this life you will have what? You'll have trouble. Okay? If you're going to follow me, you are going to have trouble. There's going to be trouble. Okay? In this life, in this world, you will have trouble. But he followed that up by saying, take heart, I have I've overcome the world. This world of trouble, this world that is so troubling, don't worry, I've overcome all that trouble. And I'm going to take care of it. 
Last week, as we, we closed out the, the Sermon on the Mount, we were left with the charge of taking the words that Jesus spoke and, and put them into action. Of taking that, that, that Sermon on the Mount, everything that He had just talked about, those becoming attitudes where God is trying to transform us into to something useful, something pliable. Those words where Jesus tells us to become salt and light, those words that, that challenge our, our marriages and our, our words and our thought process, those words that take us to task on our, our lustful thoughts and our murderous ambitions, those, those words that call us to, to love our enemies. Jesus challenges us with taking those words and putting them into action. And as we pick up the story in chapters 8 and 9, what we're going to see today is that Jesus is showing us exactly how to do that. That He is demonstrating what it means to live out the words that He has just spoken. And as we're going to see, He's going to do great and, and powerful things. He's going to call people out of their, their own agendas. He's going to change lives. And yet at the same time, He is going to begin to draw oppression that will ultimately culminate at the cross. As you look at this, this chapter, these chapters 8 and 9, I think it's good to read them together because Matthew has assembled at least three different things that I see in this block of, uh, of reading. And there are three things that we'll, you know, we'll see, and there's these three phases. There's the phases of, uh, of miracles. There's this phase of, uh, of the ministry of discipleship. And then there's going to be some misdirection that's going to take place going to take place at the end. And so right off the bat, Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount. The crowds are there, and chapter 8 opens up like this. Chapter 8, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed Him. It says, with these words, Jesus is, is setting us up, or, or Matthew is setting us up for the action that follows. The crowds had been there, when Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount, they had heard the challenge. They had heard what it means to, to take those words and to, and to put them into action. They were there when Jesus talked about the, the wise and the foolish builders. How He said the wise is the person who builds his house on the rock. When the winds and the waves and the storms of life came, the house stood firm. But the foolish person is the one that built their house on the sand. And when all that stuff happened, the storms of life came along and destroyed the house. And Jesus says, the wise person listens to my words, but the one who is unwise is like that, like that person who built their house on the, on the sand. There is no foundation. And so the crowds are listening to this. And as Jesus would stand back up from teaching and been going down the mountain, these people who have been so moved by His word, they do the only thing that they, that they know to do. They start following Him. And as is so often the case with the crowds that, that Jesus interacts with, there are people there who, who desperately need His touch. You know, I really appreciate the, the song that, that we sang earlier, uh, Breathe. You know, this is the, you know, this is the air I breathe. This is, your, this is my daily bread, my daily presence. And the, the, the chorus says, 
I'm, I'm desperate for you. I'm lost without you. I long for you. In the crowds that Jesus interacted with, it seems like there are always people like that who that could have been their theme song. Who just need to get to Jesus. Who desperately need His touch. And so as we think about the miracles that Jesus performs, we'll see these kinds of people. And so as you, you look at this, this text together, and so I'm going to give you a homework assignment right now. I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to read chapter 8 and chapter 9. Okay, I want you to just look at the action that takes place, because it is absolutely just brimming with, with all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that you'll notice, the first thing is you're going to notice the miracles that stand out. And it's just not like, it's not like it's a miracle here or a miracle there, but it's over these two chapters that Matthew tells us of no less than 10 different miracles that Jesus performs. Okay, 8.1 says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and right off the bat, there is a leper. There's a leper that shows up needing the help of Jesus. Kendall also, he, I mean, he did an incredible job of choosing our songs. as he, We sang about Jesus paid it all. There's a, there's a verse, in, or there's a line in there that says that, that Jesus has the power to, to change a leper's spots. Okay, leprosy was a very, very deadly and very contagious disease during this time that would basically cause the limbs to rot and, and, and fall off the body. And if, 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 if you had leprosy, you could not be near anybody. Okay, you had to live out in a colony. You had to live kind of abandoned to yourself or maybe to the, the other lepers. And if someone got near you, you had to cry out that you were unclean. Yet this person makes his way to Jesus and says, If you are willing, if you're willing, or if you choose, you can make me clean. 8 verse 3 says, He stretched out his hand and he touched him, saying, I choose be made clean, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Right off the bat, Jesus is revealing that his power has the ability to overcome the, the death, the sickness that is in the world. In the world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. From there, Matthew tells us about a, a centurion. A man who has great responsibility in the Roman army. Now then, let's think about this. Jesus came primarily up front to, to minister to the Jews, but here is a Gentile. Here's a Roman, probably an Italian, that is in a desperate situation. His servant is not doing well, on the brink of death. And it's, it's suggested that this relationship is so close that this, this, this servant is, is almost like a son to the centurion. And nothing can be done. And so, in his desperation, he comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, my, my servant is, is sick. Please heal him. And so Jesus agrees. And he's going to go with this centurion, but the centurion stops him. He says, Hey, look, I'm a man... Under authority, I'm a man who has authority. I say this and people do it. I say that and people do it. I know that you have the authority. All you have to do is just speak the words and my servant will be healed. 
And Jesus pauses, and in, in verse 10, he's, he's taken aback. He says, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel I have found with such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion... And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. From there, Jesus moves to Capernaum. Capernaum was sort of the the base of operations for a lot of Jesus' ministry. And Matthew tells us that uh, that Peter's mother-in-law was was very sick. She has some, some sort of fever. Jesus goes in and, and, and he rebukes the fever and maybe kind of a to shame us just a little bit. It says as soon as she's healed, what does she do? She gets up and starts serving. You know? But that's what she did because she's appreciative of Jesus. She's appreciative of, of, of what he has done. Fevers were, were very, very scary things during this time and many people died from them. And to see someone come in and speak with authority and to command out this fever would have been a very powerful and an incredible thing. Jesus has some other interactions, and then when you, uh, you get down to around verse 23, Jesus and his disciples, they get into a boat, and they're, they're crossing over the lake, and it's in the middle of that that this storm blows up. And so Jesus steps up, and again, he rebukes the wind, and he rebukes the wave. He, he calms the storm. And the only thing that they can say in in verse 27 is what sort of man is this? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who, Who is this man? What must that have been like to see Jesus, to be with Jesus in that boat, to see him calm that storm well they they land and immediately there jesus encounters two demon possessed men and of course mark 5 tells this story as well where jesus kind of has this this conversation and eventually he ends up exercising these demons and sends them into the herd of pigs that end up rushing down the hill and they're they're killed And the power that these people witness is is so great that they beg Jesus to leave their area. And the way Mark tells the story, he only tells it as one demon-possessed man, but he tells that this person wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, you, you stay. You be my witness. You go and live. You go and show them what I have what I've done for you. As you get into chapter 9, You've got a story that parallels uh, Mark chapter 2. Jesus is teaching, this is the story we think of where the roof is torn open and the, and the paralyzed man is, is lowered down. But you have something start to happen in this story. You have the, the first opposition of the religious leaders. The man is, is lowered down at Jesus' feet and Jesus forgives the guy. You're 
your sins are forgiven. Take up your mat and, and go home. And the religious leaders, the scribes, they begin to, to talk amongst themselves. They begin saying that this is blasphemy. He can't do this. Jesus knows their thoughts. And he takes them to task on it. And the way Mark records, he, he asks them a question. Which is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or, or pick up your mat and go home? But so that you know that the, the Son of Man has this ability, this power, he looks at the man and he says, pick up your mat and go home. And the man does it. The miracle substantiates the forgiveness of sin. But yet there's this opposition. The, the religious leaders have begun to take note of, of who Jesus is and, and what He is doing. And they, they, they hear the way He is talking and they're saying that he is, He's blaspheming. But yet it says the people, the crowds that are watching, they're, they're filled with awe. The seventh miracle is also paralleled in Mark 5. Jairus, the synagogue ruler, comes to Jesus. He's desperate. This is somebody who organizationally would not want to be seen with Jesus. Okay, He is of the, the religious powers that be, the powers that are sort of a, against Jesus and, and, and what He stands for. But when your child is sick, what do you do? You do whatever it takes, don't you? Parents, you've been there before, haven't you? When your child is sick, not to the point of death, but just sick. It's a frightening experience, is it not? And will you not do what you have to do to get your child the care that they need? Jairus throws all the rules out the window. And he comes before Jesus and he begs Jesus for help. And Jesus agrees, and so he's on his way with Jairus to the, to the house to heal his little girl when out of the crowd comes this woman that's been bleeding for 12 years and you know how the story goes she makes her way to jesus she touches his robes jesus feels the power leave his body and, and she's healed jesus doesn't condemn her has every right to she's in the crowd illegally she's not supposed to be there she's unclean just like the leopard she's taken something without asking but Jesus takes the time to listen to her story. Listen to her tell a, a story that's 12 years long, 12 years of, of suffering. In the meantime, Jairus' daughter dies. But Jesus gets up and he goes on, goes on to the house. And they get there and it says, When Jesus came to the leader's house, I'm in chapter 9, verse 23. He saw the flute, the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Well, you may think, well, what's a concert going on for? These are the professional mourners. They're weeping and they're wailing so that the, the, the parents can be comfortable in, in their grief and they can weep and wail. Jesus says, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And, after, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been, out, been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl got up. The report of this spread throughout the district. 
as chapter 9 closes, there's, there's two other encounters that he has. He restores the, the sight of, of two blind men. And then at the end, there's, a, there's a, a mute demoniac that he comes in contact with. He casts out the demons, gives the man back the ability to, to hear. Jesus is immediately engaged in this, this, this ministry of miracles. And, you know, while we can often find ourselves filled with awe, you know, when I read these stories, when I read these encounters that, that people had where, you know, they had no other choice but to turn to Jesus, you know, I... I I can sit back in amazement. You know, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene at, at what he has done. And it's easy for us to find ourselves, just as the crowds were, to be filled with awe. But the thing is, is this is not everything that Jesus came to do. Do you know that? He didn't just come to perform miracles. He didn't only want to be known as a, a miracle worker. He also came to call disciples to himself look at uh, look at chapter 18 uh, chapter 8 verse 22 excuse me verse 18 we have these two interactions with jesus where they're sort of some hard sayings but he's also he's counting the cost of, of following him now when jesus saw great crowds around him he gave orders to go over to the other side, and that's talking about the lake. A scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, those are some difficult things that Jesus is saying, is it not? Ben Witherington, who is a uh, New Testament scholar at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, he says this. He says, here we have two sayings about the cost of discipleship. It can involve having nowhere to live, and it can involve forsaking important duties in order to put following Jesus first on the priority list. The saying in Matthew 8.22 is radical, as burying a parent was considered a fulfillment of the Mosaic commandment to honor one's parents. The story is meant to prompt the reader to ask Jesus who must be following him. The story is meant to prompt the reader to ask who Jesus must be if following him supersedes keeping even one of the Ten Commandments. The point of, of these sayings is to show that the, the first urgency is to respond and, and to follow Jesus. Other things cannot come first where the kingdom is breaking in and Jesus is, is initiating. And so Jesus lays out the cost to these two and evidently that cost was too much for them to, to pay and they don't end up following Him. And you know, this is often the case. There are many people that, that recognize the, the call of Jesus Yet they're not willing to follow, that it's, it's too much, it's too difficult, it's, it's too hard. And so they end up abandoning what little bit of faith that they, they might once have, have had. But then Matthew in, in chapter 9, kind of right in the middle of the miracles, these, these healing stories, he inserts his story. 
As he's sitting at his tax booth, Jesus comes walking by, and, and Matthew is just extended a simple invitation. Follow me. And Matthew did just that. He got up and he left everything. Walked away from his business, walked away from his money, and he began to follow Jesus. Later that night, Jesus is invited to a party where he is the guest of honor that is thrown by Matthew and all his other tax collector buddies. Matthew ends up inviting Jesus to meet with the other Matthews of the world. Jesus didn't just come perform miracles, but he also came he also came to, to be involved in the ministry of discipleship, the ministry of, of calling others to come and join him in the process. Well, then that leads us to the last theme that we see. You know, it's, and that's the misdirection. It's, it's, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that with all of these incredible things that Jesus was doing, was doing that somebody would, would have a problem with it. But they do. The Pharisees have a big problem with what he's doing. Jesus heals the paralytic guy at the beginning of, of chapter 9, and it starts there. They begin talking amongst themselves, thinking amongst themselves, saying that, that he's, he's, he's blaspheming. At the call of Matthew, they, they see that Jesus is, is hanging out with Matthew, but not just Matthew, all of his other buddies, the tax collectors. And so they go to his disciples and they say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Basically saying he knows he shouldn't be with these people. He knows that it's basically against our laws and our rituals to be hanging out with, with people like this. Not to mention this is bad for his reputation if he is you know, trying to be this, this upcoming rabbi. He should know the kind of crown that he's keeping. Why is he, you know, instead of going to him and talking about it, which by the way, that's kind of a pretty important side thing. That if we have a problem with somebody, we need to go to them instead of discussing it with others on the peripheral. You know what I'm talking about? Go to them. But they don't do this. And they say, you know, why does he eat with, with, with tax collectors and sinners? 9.12 says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, those who, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. You see, in, in spite of the fact that Jesus has done all of these great things, in spite of the fact that lives are, are, are being changed, there's a shift that is now beginning to take place in the story. And it's going to be with us throughout the rest of the stories. You see, the Pharisees, when they saw the things that Jesus was doing, they could not deny the miracles that he was performing. Okay? They saw him, they saw him open deaf ears. They saw him give sight back to the blind. Okay? They were there when he told the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Okay, they couldn't deny the fact that Jesus was raising people from the dead, that he was doing everything that he said he was going to do that was read to us in our call to worship this morning, that he came to, 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 to free people, 
to set the captives free from the, the spiritual oppression and the physical oppression from the world. They could not deny that Jesus was doing these things. And so they began to diminish his reputation. They began to misdirect. And what we see in 9.34, after he casts out the demons, they say that he does this by the power of demons saying that the power that Jesus is using to do this great and wonderful thing doesn't come to him from God, but he's doing it by the power of evil, by the power of, of demons, of demonic forces. You know, we wonder, you know, why they're doing this. Because they are the powers at the... Uh, at hand right now they are the ones who are in charge they have the authority they have the power and here's the thing if you have power the number one thing you do if you have power is you protect the power right you hold on to power okay and they see jesus and he's coming along and he's already talked to them uh to, to all the people uh and he's challenged them on things and he's raised the standard Okay, he said, you've heard it said this, but now I'm telling you that. And he's raised the bar of, uh, uh, for what it means to be holy. He is spoken as one who has authority. The crowds themselves are astonished. They even make statements like, man, this guy, he teaches with one who actually has authority instead of speaking with one who is under somebody else's authority. This guy has the authority. And so they realize that their influence is beginning to wane. As Jesus is coming in and he's doing these very things that he said he was going to do. That first, that first day he stood up in the synagogue and he read those words of Isaiah. And so they can't deny what he has done. They can't deny the miracles. They can't deny the, the ministry that he's involved in. And so they begin to misdirect the story. Misdirect the people their power is threatened so they begin to to spin the story that sounds familiar doesn't it what does this mean for us jesus has been fully engaged since the end of the sermon on the mount in performing tremendous miracles he's been calling people to discipleship and in the process it's brought him all kinds of trouble now that we know that we don't have the ability to perform miracles. But we all know people who are hurting and are broken and need the touch of Jesus. We know people that uh, need reconciliation. They need to be brought back to Jesus. And when we choose to engage in those things, when we choose to to step in and, and try to help. You know, in some way, that's a miracle. When we step in depending on divine help to help someone come out of an addiction or to overcome abuse or, or, or some sin or, or whatever it might be. You know, there's some divine help that we have to have in order for those things to happen. 
You see, and also like, like Matthew, we are not just called to follow Jesus. Matthew brought others along with him. We're to live our life in such a way that we draw others to Jesus as well. But the thing is, is that when we do this, when we choose to live this way, it's, it's not easy. As a matter of fact, ministry is more often than not, it is messy. Okay, it's hard, it's, it's difficult, and I'm not talking about just the stuff that I do. I'm talking about the stuff that you do when you're interacting with people. When you have a coworker or a neighbor or a family member who's, who's going through something and you're stepping in there and you're trying to help and you're praying and you're doing all of these things and all of a sudden they say, hey, look, get out, I don't want any more help. And then that phrase goes off, wow, no good deed goes unpunished. Ministry is often messy. It's very rarely neat and tidy and clean, and it is almost never simple. You know why? Because people are involved in it. Okay? And because people are involved in it, that means that, number one, well, we're people. We're not perfect. It also means that we have different ideas of how things should be done. and It also means that because we're not perfect, that means that even though I'm trying to help you, I might not always get it right. Or it might mean that I've so read a situation, misread a situation, that the help that I give you really is the wrong thing. You know? And I've done that before too. Okay? I've absolutely blown it sometimes. It's just been my fault. But when we choose to engage the world, when we choose to engage with people that need the, the touch of Jesus in their life, it is always going to be difficult work. It is never, ever going to be easy. Okay, And that's what Jesus was talking about when He says, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers. Okay, That's not a tranquil life. Oh, peace, love. It's not about that. Okay? To get to that peace and tranquility and all that stuff, you got to go through some stuff. That means we step into a bad situation, trying to bring about reconciliation, trying to bring about good, trying to bring about hope. Okay? you got to step into that fight in order for peace to be the outcome. Okay? And it's not easy. It's not easy to be a peacemaker. But this is what Jesus calls us to. So let's, get, let's look at our growth point. And it's, it's simply this. That following Jesus will often result in opposition. But with opposition comes an opportunity to grow in our faith and character. Okay, Now then, we can crumble during that opposition. And if we crumble during that opposition, then we probably need to go back, rewind back to the end of chapter 7 and have the kids sing the wise man song again. Because if we've crumbled, we've built our foundation on the wrong place. Or we built our house on the wrong foundation. And we need to start again on the rock. When we built it on the rock, when the opposition comes, we'll be able to stand firm. In the middle of that, it's in the, it, have you ever noticed how God takes you in the middle of a pressure situation? And if we're willing to allow Him to, He'll shape us. And he'll use us for something even greater than what we could have possibly imagined. It's like the, 
It's like the piece of coal with the pressure on it. It takes that pressure to form a diamond. In in a spiritual sense, God does the same thing. If we will continue to trust Him during those times of opposition, our faith can grow. Our character can can be refined and we will gain more influence which means that gives us more ability to speak hope and kingdom and reconciliation into the lives of those that desperately need it. So it's not easy. Jesus never promised us a rose garden. I beg your pardon. Some of you will not get that. It just means you're not as cool as the rest of us. And then you can beg my pardon. But following Jesus is not easy. It never is. Jesus never said it was going to be. It's always going to be tough. But it's always going to be worth it. It's always going to be worth it. Because it means that we're pointing people to something that is better than what we have. Or better than than what they have. We're pointing them to life. We're pointing them to freedom. We're pointing them out of oppression. But that only comes through Jesus. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to consider the things that we've talked about, not only today, but but last week as well, of of, of the foundation. You can't hold up in these things. You cannot minister effectively if our foundation is not strong. Okay, if your foundation's not strong, let it get wiped out and then go back and start over building it on Jesus. If it's on your own abilities and your own smarts and all oh, how great and wonderful your looks and all these you know, superficial things, that's not going to hold up. Go back and build it on Jesus. Then you can engage in the ministry that Jesus engaged in. You can engage in, in bringing life and hope. You can engage in ministry of discipleship. And not only that, when oppression does come and people may try to misdirect what you're trying to do and call your motives into question and, 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 and just give you a bad name for trying to do good, you'll be able to withstand that. That's what Jesus offers us. And so I want to ask you this as well. Are you engaging with people who need Jesus? Are you challenging the, the, the powers of Satan? Are you... Are you doing everything that you can to bring about reconciliation where reconciliation must take place? Are you being a peacemaker? Which means are you stepping into possibly even hostile situations in the name of Jesus in order to bring about hope and and restoration? If you're not, I encourage you to change, to come back, to start over. If that means tearing down the first building and building up another one, do it. But let Jesus be that foundation. If you need Jesus, come and meet him today. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to to baptize you into his name even before we leave today. But don't go away hurting. If we can help you or pray for you, why don't you come while we stand and while we sing.